have a meal beforehand, and uh, it's not going to be a lengthy meeting, and we just would have time for fellowship, so plan that, would you? It's next Sunday in the evening, and uh, it'd be a good time for us to get together. Okay, so um, here's the proverb for the day. I chose verse 9 out of chapter 16. We make our plans, but the Lord decides where we'll go. <laughs> so um, I want to pray over the teaching of the word. Would you just agree with me? Lord, you, you have said that and established in your word that you honor your word even above your name. It's the only thing. So Lord, as we wander into your word, help us, Lord, to rightly honor you by rightly finding a place for your word in our hearts. Pray these things, Lord, and ask you to fill us with life. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. 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 Well, a number of years ago, Lisa and I were um, at a Foursquare Pastors con con uh, annual convention, and it happened to be in that year, it was in Washington, D.C., and Lisa and I had, we don't get out all that much, we'd really never been past the Rockies very far, and so going to Washington, D.C. was a pretty big deal for us, um, you know, kind of a famous place, wouldn't you agree? And um, so we kind of got on the internet in advance and figured, well, what should we do besides convention stuff if we're going to go that far? There's some things we got to do. And I figured, well, you need to go to the White House, which I don't know if you know about it, but you can't just walk into the White House. There was a time in our country where you could walk up and knock on the door and the president would say, yeah, um, <laughs> come in. <laughs> um, that doesn't happen anymore. Um, you go there and knock on the door, the guys up on the roof with the guns might visit you, but the president doesn't answer the door anymore. Anyway, so um, we got on the internet, what do we do if we want to visit the White House? And there's actually a procedure, you can fill out an application, maybe you'll get to go. Um, you got to go through the complete FBI background check. And um, so we did all of our stuff months in advance, because I wanted to go to the White House, you know. I thought it would be kind of cool to go in the White House. Be, I wanted to go to Congress, and I wanted to see the Senate, and those other things too. And, and uh, we did everything we were supposed to do, crossed the T's, dotted the I's, and nothing. Never heard back from anything, anybody or anything. So we packed up and went to Washington, D.C., and I took the clothes that I would normally take to a pastor's conference. Shorts. <laughs> Shorts and casual wear, because you may not know this, but... I'm wearing long pants now, but the minute I get home today, it's back into shorts. If it's not February, I'm wearing shorts anyway. So I, I took shorts and maybe a couple of Hawaii shirts, which is dressy in my mind. And we went to Washington, D.C. I'm thinking, oh, that's it, you know, whatever. Didn't hear anything. I'm just going to go to a Foursquare convention. It's just, it's just a bunch of pastors. I don't have to dress up for them, and um, right? So um, my bosses and stuff like that. So anyway... We get to Washington, D.C., check into our hotel. We're staying in the um, big hotel where it was where Reagan got shot. Anyway, anyway, so that's where the conference is. Um, this is all stupid. It has nothing to do with the message today. Um, and um, waiting, my, my, I get into my room, and my, my, the phone has a light going. Well, yes, there's a message. They said, oh, it's, it was our, our, our senator's office. They said, they need to talk to you. Oh, well, of course. <laughs> 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 and I talked to some aide, and they said, hey, we are so sorry. We got your name. We know you want to go to the White House, and it, it, it dropped through the cracks. We've made arrangements for you. You get to go to the White House on Thursday or Wednesday at, at 10 in the morning. Can you do that? And I'm thinking, hmm, convention, business, White House, White House. So <laughs> I said to Lisa, let's go. Um, we didn't have the right clothes, so I had to go find dress slacks and a sports coat. And, you know, I'm thinking, out of respect to the office, you know, so... 
I went and got some grown-up clothes, and we, we went, Lisa had hers with her, always prepared. She's the Boy Scout of our family, if you didn't know that. And um, we, went, um, we went to the White House, and uh, it was interesting. They said, here's where you go, and here's the gate you go in, and don't bring a gun kind of a thing. So we went, we went and you, you go in, and um, you see these guards at a gate. And Anybody here ever been to the White House? Okay, so you know the, you know the routine. So you go through the deal. They um, look on a list. Your name's either on the list or it's not. If it is, you can go through, and then they screen you, and they check your pockets and all da 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 So we're going on this tour, and they said, okay, well, go, it, it, that's the door. I'm thinking, I'm thinking in my mind, wait a minute, isn't there going to be a group and a tour guide like on TV? It's not like that. At least it wasn't for us. They said, there's the door. Okay. So we walked up and <laughs> opened the door to the White House and walked in and... We're wandering around. There's nobody with us. I know they were watching us, you know. They were watching her because, um, you know. Anyway, so we're, one, we're going down these hallways that I've seen on the news, and there's these mementos, and we wander into this room. Those, there's a green room and a red room and a yellow room and a blue room, and that's all I know. They're just different colors. But they're full of, like, China and the state room where they have all of these big state dinners, and it's amazing stuff. And, you know, we're just wandering around. We didn't try to go upstairs. Um, we didn't go into the West Wing where the Oval is. We, there's places where you don't go. But what we saw was amazing. All the history all of the meetings that had taken place, all of the decisions that had happened under that roof. It was awe-inspiring just to be in this place which um, so much happens. And I know it's the political hot spot of our country, but it was, there's a lot that's happened there under the care and keeping and the blessing of heaven. I think there's a lot that's happening there. And I was thinking this is really, really cool to be in the White House. I mean, I just, I'm still excited about it. It's been a long number of years ago that we were there. And here's, here's what made me think of this. We, we've been on this study about heaven. And uh, of course, if you're going to study heaven, you're going to get into the last book in the Bible, the Revelation, because there's a lot in there about John who visited heaven and chapters four and five tell all this stuff about what it's like to visit God's house not the way we talk about God's house, the church is God's house and God is here and all that, but we're talking about where the throne is. He visited this. And you know, although the White House was cool, there was never a moment when we were walking up and down those halls where I felt like I had to say like John, behold. Behold is a Bible word for wow. Okay, that's basically what it means. Wow, look at this, behold. And a couple of times, John gets in there and he just says, behold, he sees, and he's seeing the throne, behold, and then he sees the one on the, behold, amazing things. And as we walk through these verses, I'm, we're going to talk about now the other things that he saw going on. That's where we're going with this today. But I also was noticing some things that are not mentioned, because I don't think John saw some other things. Let me, let me rephrase that. There are some things that he didn't see happening in heaven, like, like this. He didn't see a bunch of people sitting around bored forever, floating on clouds, <laughs> playing harp music. Now, I'm not saying there's not going to be harps there, because there are. we're going to come to that in a minute. But he also didn't say anything about having met Peter 
at the pearly gates with a clipboard. It's just, I saw a door open to heaven and behold. And we went through that last week. Did you hear about the cat who died and went to heaven? You already know this is made up because that's not possible, right? Okay, yeah, dogs do go to heaven. Anyway, do you hear the one about the cat who went to heaven? He died and he went to heaven and, and, and Peter met him there at the pearly gates and, and he says, oh, you've been such a good cat. You've been such a good cat all these years. Come on in. You can have anything you want. Name it. And that cat said, well, you know, meow. It starts whining like cats do. And, and it says, you know, meow. I've lived with this poor family meow, all my whole life. And I've always had to meow, sleep on this hard floor. Meow. That's what the cat said. And Peter says, he interrupts the cat, and he says, say no more. And instantly, this fluffy satin pillow appeared for the cat to sleep on and uh, be his little bed. Now, the cat was actually very, very excited, but you couldn't tell because cats have an attitude. Like, like, you owe it to them, and you're bad for being good to them. Anyway, so, so and then a few days later, six little cute mice died in a cheese factory explosion. And they went to heaven too. And they get there, and there's Peter at the pearly gates. <laughs> you can see the picture here. And they meet him, and Peter says, Boy, you've been such good little mice. You know, can you, you can have anything. And, they, and, and, and the mice picked a spokesmouse, and he said, His name was Mick, not Mike, not Mickey, Mick. Mick says, You know, Peter, we've had it hard our whole lives. We've been chased by cats, we've been chased by dogs, we've been chased by women with brooms. And, you know, it's just really hard. We have to run on, and Peter interrupts the little spokes mouse and says, say no more. And, and, and little, said, but I would, could we have roller skates? Say no more. And instantly, all of these little mice were fitted with little roller skates. About a week goes by, and Peter thinks, you know, I haven't seen that cat for a while, I better check in on him. So he goes over, and here's the cat, purring on that soft satin pillow and he wakes up the gentle gently wakes the cat up and he says you know how you doing cat stretches a cat kitty cat stretch yawn you know okay i'll talk to you for a minute but i'm going back to sleep you can leave me alone and and he says i'm doing really good it's really nice thank you for the soft pillow. oh and by the way thanks for those meals on wheels you've been sending me <laughs> You should check that out. How much time did I waste on that? <laughs> in, in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, John talks about what he actually saw there. And um, he, when he looked and he saw, the scripture says he looked and he saw the throne and the one on the throne. And it's like he describes it in terms of jewels. I'm not going to re-preach last week's message, but there's this brilliance, this luminance, this is magnificence that's just present. And I... I think that as best as he could describe it, he did, but it was really an inadequate description. Randy Alcorn, who has written a book and writes a lot about heaven, he says this about he heaven. Satan labors to give people an inaccurate view of heaven. Our enemy slanders three things, God's person, God's people, and God's place. Some of his favorite lies concern heaven. And I think, 
That makes perfect sense because Satan has a vested personal um, axe to grind in lying to people about heaven. If you recall, if you know your theology, um, you know, he used to be, heaven used to be his hangout until he was forcibly evicted from heaven. And I'm not going to go there today, but you know, if you're curious about that, you can, you can read about that in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and see what happened there. Um, but that all happened before the temptation in the garden. So forth. But, but it must drive the enemy of our souls. It must drive him nuts to consider the fact that we will one day make our permanent residence in that place that he can never be in that is so wonderful. And so he tells all kinds of misconceptions about what heaven's going to be like. And I think because there are so many of them around that it's really, really important for us to find out what is it that God says in his word about heaven. And um, the last time we were in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, uh, we saw it was where John saw the throne and the one who sat on the throne. Today we're going to talk about what ha- what's happening around the throne. You know, what's happening with all of those, those others that are there? What are they doing and one of the things that they're doing there is worshiping. We're going to talk about that some. So it's safe to say that when you're in heaven, one of the things that you're going to be doing is worshiping. And that's not the only thing that you'll be doing there. The um, Bible says that you'll have certain tasks to, to do, certain responsibilities. You'll help administer um, you know, in the kingdom age. Um, the scripture says we're going to rule and reign with Christ. So, um, but one of the things that you will do is worship. In fact... It's one of the few things that you can do today on the earth that you will also do in heaven. Worship is worship God. Because there's not going to be any evangelization going on in heaven. There won't be any Jesus crusades in heaven. Think about that. There's not going to be any personal witnessing. Who are you going to tell about Jesus that's that's already there? They already get that, right? There's not going to be any feeding the poor in heaven. I mean, there's there's not going to be, I don't think there's going to be any disciple. I don't don't know. But you're going to be worshiping in heaven, and we can do that same thing right here. So so how do they do it in heaven? How How can we on earth as closely replicate worship the way they do there? I mean, that's that's one of the questions that I ask in my mind. So today we're going to consider two um, prominent topics about what we find in these scriptures. The other people that are there, the others that are there that John sees when he's, when he's looking around the throne, and what it is that they're doing, their occupation. What, it is, what, are, they, what are they primarily doing while they're there? So let's look at the others that are in heaven, because John is definitely not alone. Revelation 4, pick up, picking up where we left off last time, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones... And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, the obvious question is, who are these 24 elders? Lots of ideas and opinions out there. Some people have suggested that they're angels. I don't believe that they're angels. Angels in the scriptures are never called elders. Um, Others suggest that the 24 maybe are priests from the Hebrew nation, uh, because um, if you know your Old Testament, you will know that there were 24 courses of priests who had a rotational schedule that they took care of administering ministry in the temple. Um, I don't 
think that's it either because those priests were never called elders anywhere in the Word of God. Um, I believe that the, it's my opinion, I believe that the 24 elders represent the Christian church and there's several reasons why. There are eight times in the New Testament where believers are said that we are going to rule and reign with Christ. And so we're going to rule and reign with him and here are 24 elders sitting around helping rule and reign. But there's something even more definitive in the next chapter, and we're going to get into, bounce back and forth into that a couple times today, into chapter 5, verse 9, because you'll hear the words to a song that these elders are singing. If you just listen to the lyrics, they're singing, and they say, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and nation. Only the church can sing those words. It had to be the church singing that. So I believe that the 24 elders somehow represent the body of Christ. So back to chapter 4, verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Do you know that song we just sang? We were singing Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay, this is, this is where you start getting to stuff into the Revelation where people start going, say, what? What does that mean? Does that mean that there are seven Holy Spirits? The answer is no, it doesn't mean that. We know from both Ephesians and uh, Corinthians that there's one spirit not seven. But we can still understand what the symbolism that's going on here. I think some people believe that these seven lamps um, or the seven spirits of God are referring to the sevenfold ministry of the working of the Holy Spirit. And there's a text for that. Isaiah 11, chapter two, you can look it up. It mentions the spirit of God. That's one. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of power, um, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So, so there's some argument there, the sevenfold description of, of what the single Holy Spirit's doing. So anyway, Revelation chapter five mentions the seven, it also mentions the sevenfold spirit of God that's sent out into every part of the earth in verse six. So let's read on verses six through eight. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures. Okay, hold on full of eyes in front and back. Verse seven, the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature, like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I thought about that for a minute. So if you're within earshot, you hear these living creatures and they do not rest day or night. They're constantly saying, repeating this. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They're, they're, they're just, it, it's, it doesn't stop. And I don't think that it's a bad sound. I mean, I, I, to me, it's like, I don't know what it would be like, but it'd be like background music. It would be some, it's got to be something that's powerful, it's true, and it's living. And it's, but anyway, it's going on. And this, this, this term, living creatures, depends on what translation you've got in your lap. Um, some translations use the word beasts. is kind of unfortunate for our context because 
um, you know, we, we conjure up these images in our mind. But the word here, the, the Greek term is actually zoa, which just simply means a living thing. We have our words zoo, zoology. Okay, so it's a living thing. And here, John's description, you can find an almost identical description in the book of Ezekiel, um, in Ezekiel 1 and in Ezekiel 10, where he describes these, as th- these four creatures, and they're, and they're called cherubim around the throne of God. And, and they are a special classification of angelic being. Um, they guard the glory of God, and they help uh, administer judgment on the earth. And so there's, there's more. He sees more. So let's go on to chapter 5, verse 6. And I looked in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, plainly, this lamb is Jesus Christ. We find that imagery throughout the book. The lamb is Jesus Christ. He's, he's the hero of this whole story because he is about to take hold of this scroll, the scroll, which is the title deed to the earth. It's possession and ownership and rights over the earth. And, he's, and at this point, he's bringing full redemption to the earth and to reign and to rule forever. So gathered here in this moment, in this picture, that John sees is the church, the angelic hosts, and four living creatures. They're all worshiping. They're all looking at Christ in heaven, and they're seeing him in his glory. So we're seeing a whole lot going on in heaven, more than just a throne and one who's sitting on it. The scale here is huge. This picture is huge. Um, verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. There are a lot of angels. Scripture talks a lot about angels. There are 17 uh, books in the Old Testament that mention it, 17 in the New Testament that mention angels. 103 times in the Old Testament, 146 times in the New Testament, angels are mentioned. They're just prominent. Angels are prominent. They're around us. They're, they're ministering, Bible says, and they're going to be with us in heaven worshiping, and there's going to be one humongous, huge choir. So how many are there? Okay, well, I don't know, but if you want to do some math, 10,000 times 10,000, okay, that's 100 million. Um, there was a, one theologian in the 1200s, the guy's name was Albertus Magnus, and he um, calculated, he thought the precise number of angels. And I, I don't know, I, I don't know how he got the number, but he calculated that there are precisely 399,920,004 angels. Now he could be right. There is some finite number of angels, and there's a number. I, I, I don't know how he got that number. I don't know if it's right or wrong. I just, okay, there's a lot. Um, the, 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 we don't really know how many angels are. He, you know, I'm just, I don't want to make a deal about, about that, but it's a huge number, 399 million. It's at least 100 million and thousands and thousands, thousands and thousands. You know, and the word construction in the sentence just simply means myriads upon myriads upon thousands upon thousands. So it's a big number. So here's the picture. The, you have the throne, the lamb, Four cherubim, 24 elders who represent the church, and as far as your eyes can see, angels. That's what John saw. Now, let's turn to not only who's up there, but what's going on. What are they doing? And the primary thing that's going on in this scene is worship. Worship. 
And commonly, when the topic of heaven comes up, people ask, well, what are we going to be doing in heaven? And if you say, well, we're going to be worshiping in heaven, typically the response is, well, really? Is that it? Because that sounds kind of boring. It sounds like one big, long, forever church service. I mean, I'll go for an hour or so on a Sunday, as long as I have cookies after. But forever? I mean, okay. That's how we think about it. And, and, and maybe that's the reason why when you maybe go to a memorial service or a funeral, you'll hear somebody make this comment like, yeah, well, yeah, old Bob is up in heaven now playing golf. <laughs> golf? Really? <laughs> okay. I mean, or... Uh, right now, I know she's hiking on some mountain in heaven, you know, and um, you know, or some other earthly activity. And we always somehow, with our minds, want to confine our mindset to some list of earthbound activities, as if something. Well, there could never be anything better than golf or mountain climbing. I mean, nothing wrong with golfing and mountain climbing, but if we think that's the best heaven is going to be. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor come into the mind of man the wonderful things God has in store for those who love him. I can think of mountain climbing and I can think of golf. It's not that. I'm not saying that won't happen. I'm just saying that's not the apex of heaven. Not even close. So when I read through Revelation 4 and 5, I, I, I get this idea that John is not bored. I don't get the picture that he's bored. So let's talk about the worship that's going on there and see how relevant that would be to us now. Because if we were asked the question, what's going on on earth? Is there anything, what on earth is going on in heaven? The answer is worship. So the first thing for us to look at now is the response that's being generated here and uh, the proper response and um, it's going on in heaven. Revelation 5, um, starting in verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll... So there's something God is doing here. It's a definite action. The lamb is taking the title deed to the earth, and that's going to now lead and result in the full redemption through this series of judgments and the Lord's second coming. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. So when they saw the lamb take the scroll... Their worship was a response to what he did. And here's the principle. Worship must be intellectual. Worship has to be intellectual. It's what you see, what you know God to be or know that he does that causes a response down in our soul, in our heart. Worship is a human response. It's a human reaction to a divine action. They knew what it meant when he took that scroll. And so now here is their intelligent thought through response. Well, this is good news. And they worship the Lord. Worship involves the mind. We think about what God has done, who, who God is, then we respond. A, a person who wrote a lot about heaven, he wrote this. At times throughout the day, as I work in my office, I find myself on my knees thanking God for his goodness. When I eat a meal with my wife, when I talk with a friend, if I take my dog for a walk, I worship God for his goodness. The world is full of praise prompters, but heaven will overflow with them. I love that phrase, praise prompters. 
Do you notice them in your life? You ought to. Do you, do you just take for granted the beautiful and good things God puts in your path? Or just do you assume about them? Those are praise prompters. You know, there are so many things, and they're happening all the time, where I know I need to slow down and say, thanks for that, God. Thank you for that. That was wonderful. And I think that little phrase, you know, praise prompters, is, it's really good it, it, when we see God's handiwork. When we just see, it, it should prompt a reaction in our heart. And that reaction is worship. Jesus talked about this in Mark 12. He said, and he said, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your strength. HSMS, that's how I remember that. Heart, soul, mind, strength. HS, can you remember? You know, you know the phrase, but you can't remember the four characteristics. Love it with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Please dispense with the idea that worship is this mindless reaction this activity, that we all get pumped into a frenzy and we disengage our mind. No, we engage the mind. Reason thought leads us there. Powerful worship happens when our mind is stretched by, by the words of a song and, 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 and it, that give us a fuller understanding of God. You know, I've been a Christian like... Um, Many of you have been a Christian long enough to see some trends over time in the worship music in churches. And, um, you know, when I got saved, worship music in churches was very, very simple. You know, um, I exalt thee. Okay, I won't sing. I won't put you through that. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. You know, it's this very simple, God is love from above kind of stuff, right? <laughs> you remember. Many of you can know what I'm talking about. You know, and... I would be, you know, my immaturity back then would, would rate songs based on whether I liked them or not. And the ruler with which I measured them was whether or not they were as good as the secular music that I really enjoyed. Which, okay, I'm going to embarrass myself now a little bit and tell you that the secular music I thought was really, was really, really happening, was really pretty good. And, um, <laughs> you know, I measured against these quality songs with great lyrics like, Mama, don't take my Kodachrome away. <laughs> That's a meaningful, important principle in life. Don't take my film, Mom, from my camera. Or, Muskrat Susie, Muskrat Sam, do the jitterbug in Muskrat Land. Okay, <laughs> don't make that face at me. <laughs> I mean, come on. My measurement was that stuff. And I suppose every generation thinks that they have worship, they have music really figured out. They, and, and old people just don't get it. Because my mom didn't get that muskrat thing like she should have. <laughs> I don't know. She never sang it in the kitchen, as I can recall. Do you know that song, Mom? Yeah, I'm sorry for you, because... You should know muskrat love. Anyway, so, um, you know, I, and I didn't, I didn't like hymns. Hymns are just old, crusty, dusty songs with a number in a book that old people like. <laughs> okay, that's what I thought. And, um, you know, they don't know how, you know, onward Christian soldiers. And the thing was onward Christian soldiers, I'm 
I'm a new Christian at a time where our culture is so broken by the Vietnam War. And so here we have this worship song about being a soldier. It's like mixed messages, and I didn't have the kind of respect until I started to actually read the words and listen to the deep theology that was embedded in some of those songs. And it stretched my mind, and the words made me want to worship God. Worship has to include an intellectual component. Second thing to notice about the worship there is that there's this position that gets assumed um, during worship. And from this, I would get the principle that worship is physical. It's physical. It's not just something in the heart. It's physical. Uh, Verses 9 through 11. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. There must be gravity there. They fall. They're not being pushed down. This is not the Spirit of God squashing them flat. They fall. Before him who sits on the throne and lives forever and ever, cast their crowns. God, my glory, here, it's not mine, it's yours. I'll toss it at your feet. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, these are the 24 elders that God singles out in his word. These are... (laughs) I'm not going to be in the 24. There's a lot of awe in my heart about what's, what's going on here. And they're throwing their, their crowns down. They're, you're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And then in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Why are they doing this? Why are they falling down? Because they're awestruck. They're grateful, and their response is physical. They responded the way ancient people would respond if royalty, if a king or a queen would enter or you would go into their presence, you would bow or get down on your knee. And so worship here is physical. There are 97 times in the Old Testament that that word worship, um, the Hebrew word shakah, um, is there. And the word literally means bow down. Worship means bow down. It's also, in some places, translated to prostrate, to fall down, to crouch, to reverence, to do reverence. It's just this physical affirmation of honor and authority and respect. It's just what we do. And Psalm 95 is just one of the most famous. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Shekah. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Let us bow down. And it's, it's not that you have to bow down. You don't have to. It's not that, this, that the Spirit of God is somehow pressing down on your neck. And it's not that you're not spiritual if you don't bow down. It's, that's none of it. The Bible talks about other expressions as well um, that, are, that, that, that are going on that are physical expressions of worship. And I'm sharing these with you today not, because they're in the Scripture. I don't have some agenda that I'm trying to push you into during worship time here. Everybody, you good with that? We're going to just look and see what was going on there and see what was, what was going on in heaven. I don't want to push anybody here into any style of worship. Um, there's a measurement for whether worship is right or not, and Jesus will talk about that. We'll see that in a bit. Anyway, so another one that they mentioned is the raising of the hands. 1 Timothy 2, 
Verse 8, Paul says, So I want the men to offer prayers in every place, lifting up holy hands without being angry or argumentative. You know, it's interesting that I see people raising their hands here during worship, and it's not unusual in our, in our culture, in the culture of this church, for people to raise their hands during worship. You're not required to. You're welcome to. It's sincere. It's a, re- it's a release, and it's a surrender. But there are places where people argue against it. Lifting up holy hands without being angry or argumentative. I've talked to people who've been asked to leave churches because they raise their hands during worship. There's just something in the culture there that doesn't want that to happen. And I remember the very first time as a very, very new believer, I go into this big church and I get saved. I open my heart to Jesus and I worship there and I see people doing this. And my first response is, what? What is wrong with these people? They're weird. It'd be perfectly fine if it was a football game. Right? But I thought in my heart, these people have issues. They're weird fanatics. But I also noticed that there was genuine joy in their countenance. It wasn't somehow a mechanical, oh, I'm doing it because the person next to me, I got to do it, otherwise I don't fit in. It was, it was genuine joy. And then my shifting started to think about not what's wrong with them, but because my hands weren't going up, what's wrong with me? Now, that's an introspective look that God is okay with. For you to look and say, is there something in me that's withholding worship from God? Listen, I don't say that in judgment anyway. Whether your hands go up or not is not the measurement of whether you worship. Don't feel that way. Scripture says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's not my point. My point is to say, raise your hands or else you're not a worshiper. That's not it at all. But there were holy hands being raised. And that's why that's an acceptable form of worship. And... Um, I think when you lift your hands up, it's a sign of welcome. It's a sign of, of, you know, when my granddaughters run towards me with their hands up, there's not much better in life than that. How would that be any different how God would view it if our hands would come up? I mean, it's also a sign of surrender. You know, stick up your hands. (laughs) Right? It's a sign of surrender. It's good to surrender to God. It's the universal sign of, you know, that and... um, you know, we don't go all the way up when we need to meet a strange, a new person. We, we, a stranger, I don't mean a strange new person, um, <laughs> but we put our hand out, right? We put a hand out. It's, it's a sign of welcome and trust and unity, whatever it is. Okay, another position, another physical act that the Bible speaks about is kneeling. Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Like, like bowing, kneeling is just this sign of humility. It means I'm, 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 Placing myself below the king. He's my focus. Another position the Bible speaks about is dancing. Now, I know some of you are going, "Um, wait a second. He didn't just say dancing, did he? Yeah. I thought dancing was bad. Is it okay for Christians to dance? Can Christians dance? And I'm thinking, well, some can. I'm not one of them. I'm not saying I won't. I'm not saying I refuse, because if I ever have done that with God, God says, oh, yes, you will, Terry, right? <laughs> right? But um, my answer about that is there are lots of scriptural examples of people dancing before the Lord. 
Here's what the Bible says about it. Here's one place, Psalm 149. Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, and his praise in the assembly of saints. In the assembly of saints. Did you catch that? Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. It goes on. Now, this is not talking about Studio 54. Okay? I'm not making any comments about Studio 54. I'm saying the context here is celebration and worship. Then there are lots of examples of that. Um, They had these great feasts. Um, If Israel accompanied, people were dancing before the Lord. David danced before the Lord. In Exodus 15, you find Miriam and the women of Israel were playing the tambourine and dancing before the Lord. Um, In in, in Ecclesiastes 3, the King Solomon uh, says, there's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. So another expression is standing. Praise him, verse 130, praise him, you servants of the Lord who are standing in the house of the Lord. Now, somehow in Western culture, in um, our culture, uh, we guard ourselves against physical expressions in worship, except for one, sitting. That seems acceptable in every church everywhere, sitting. And, um, you know, it's acceptable, Lord, yeah, that's acceptable to me, I'm comfortable with that, as if somehow the message is it's really about me, um, and as long as I'm comfortable, God will be okay. <laughs> so that's a universal one that isn't so much mentioned in the Word of God. Another one, the Bible speaks, another physical act the Bible speaks about in, in worship is the lifting of the eyes. Psalm 123, unto you I lift my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. And Jesus did this when he prayed. Unto you I lift my eyes, O, 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 o you who dwell in the heavens. And guess what? I looked through scriptures. Here's something I did not find in worship. Closing your eyes and folding your hands. It's not in there. Doesn't make it wrong. I'm just saying that's not the biblical model about how to worship. But it's the one which we probably are most familiar. Just just saying. There's just this tremendous freedom in um, in all of these expressions, the physical part of worship. Third thing I want you to notice about their worship is that their possessions are employed in worship. Maybe you caught this in verse 8, channel 5, that they, they have a harp. Now, the first time I read this, I wasn't all that excited because I don't play the harp. And, um, I mean, I listen to it in the right context, okay? There are some times where, and I, I'm, I got a playlist with some harp music, okay? I confess, I'm man enough to listen to harp music, but whatever, um, you know, I don't, don't really play it, but I, I, I admire someone who really is a great harpist or harper or harpoonist or whatever you call them. <laughs> but when you study this out, you find out that what we translate here as harp, it's this ancient trapezoidal, it's a trapezoidal instrument with strings that was usually played with a pick. Trapezoidal means that there's no, it's four sides with two sides are parallel and two are not, so these are curved. But it's a stringed instrument that you play with a pick. Kind of, heaven's starting to sound a little cooler right now, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, okay. And the Amplified Bible translated, it says, 
a lute or a guitar. Sounded pretty cool him. So here's the point. There's the, the, the worship of God throughout the Bible is musical. Whether they're moving the Ark of the Covenant or they were dancing before the Lord after the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus 15 at all these great feasts and, and, and festivals of Israel. And they had a choir in the temple that was singing. And even there are examples at the beginning of battle, the choir and the musicians went ahead in worship. Psalm 150, verse 3, praise him with the sound of the trumpet, praise him with the lute and the harp, praise him with the timbrel and dance, praise him with string instruments and flutes, praise him with loud cymbals, praise him with clashing cymbals. Peter, the rolling thunder and lightning, way to go, praise him with those cymbals. Peter's the drummer, as long as being a man of God. So worship is musical, and and I I think worship in heaven is going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Martin Luther, um, he said a lot of great things. But here's something. Else. He said, next to theology, I give music the highest place and honor. Music is the art of the prophets, the only art that can calm the agitations of the soul. It is one of the most significant and delightful presents God has given us. Music. That's true. I mean, I mean, we play it when we work. We play it when we're in the car, somehow it gets us to moving, even if it's just our toes, tap. Um, it's, it's, it's how we're made. It's, it's, there's going to be music in heaven. Martin Luther, Luther also said this, listen to this. If any man despises music, as all fanatics do, for him I have no liking. For music is a gift and the grace of God, not the invention of men, Thus it drives out the devil and makes people cheerful. Then one forgets all wrath, impurity, and other devices. That's great. Okay, the fourth thing to notice about the worship in heaven is there's some emotional investment too. And as you read through this, you get the idea that these people put their whole being, their, their, their whole heart into it. So it leads me to this. This, worship is emotional. Yes, it's intellectual, but that's not all that it is. All that it is. It's, it's also emotional. Jesus said in in, the words of Jesus in John chapter 4, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God's looking for people to worship him. He's looking for people to worship him in spirit and truth. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay, and the final point that I see in all this is that we worship Jesus, no one else and nothing else. John observed all of these things, these components that we've talked about in worship, and they're worshiping the Lord, but they didn't worship worship itself. We we used to sing a song, it hasn't been, we haven't done it in the church for a while, Um, and I don't remember the name of the song, I'm terrible with names, but it it was basically a, a, a band in England who were very um, prolific, gifted, and they wrote a lot of worship music that was being used around the world. And they got to the point where it was, they were worshiping the worship. And um, they, they kind of went off the air for a while, and they came back with this song, and um, maybe some of you can help me remember it, but uh, forgive for the things I've made it, Lord. Who, can, who knows that song? Heart of Worship. Who said that? <laughs> we have an expert in the back row. Thank you. 
Matt Redmond. I couldn't think of his name. And that was the issue. They had made worship the thing that was being worshiped. It was just out of, it, they weren't bowing down to it like a God, but it was in the wrong, it had too much emphasis. And they took some time and they repented and the Lord gave them this beautiful song that probably was a bigger hit than any of the other stuff that, that, that has been picked up. And so um, it just, Jesus and nothing else. And, and they, they didn't, and the highest compliment, I would just say this, that the highest compliment you could make to our worship team isn't going up to them after church and saying, I loved worship today. I loved that new song you taught. It's fine to, fine to love it. And it's fine to love that new song. But the best compliment you can make to our worship team is, you led me into the presence of the king. I was in the presence of the king. I wouldn't have gone there. Thank you for leading me. That's the best compliment you can give to our worship team. That's what they want to do every single time. I got to be willing to go there, right? Now, understanding what we now know after what we've read about worship, let me just go back and take another pass at this passage, Revelation 9, 5, verses 9 to 14. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by, by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. This is everyone. This is every person. This is every person who claims there is no God. And every fish and you and me are going to be proclaiming this. I heard, them, I heard them saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said amen and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Wow. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And they poured the, these people poured themselves into it. And I read the word loud. <laughs> they worshiped him with a loud voice. Now, let's be careful here because this, they're not talking here about the thump of a subwoof or a loud sound reinforcement system. That's fine in its time and its place. For everything, there's a season, right? This is talking about your own voice singing loudly. Your voice it's not this, shout to the Lord all the earth. It's shout to the Lord, right? Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's not this lifting holy hands. It's, it's something of, of meaning the words you sing. And if the words say, shout to the Lord, dial it, crank it up. <laughs> now listen, if God gave you a great voice, 
sing it loudly when you come to church. And if God didn't give you a great voice, give it back to God at church. <laughs> and maybe you think, I'm just not that good a singer. Here's, here's my request of you. Deal with it. Deal with it. Just, you know, because the voice you have is the voice that the Lord God Almighty gave you to worship with. And it's adequate to sing praises to the king. The Bible says, make a joyful noise. Anybody can do that. If you're a great singer, by the way, and the person next to you is off key, sing louder. If you're, if you're next to me, I need you to sing louder so I can find the key. I, I'm, I'm serious. I need you to sing with a loud voice. Isaiah 29 we're just about to, done, about to be done. We're going to do one song, but I want, I want to just, you know, I want to, I want to uncork it on this song. Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord says, These people worship me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And God here is talking about people who go through the, go through the motions, but their heart's not really in it. When you sing to the Lord, sing it like you mean it. And I know, I know people are wired differently. Some people are exuberant and emotional and others are more stoic I know we're wired differently and I understand that but I also hear people use this excuse you know well I'm just not an emotional person really what about when the Seahawks win the Super Bowl what about when <laughs> what about when your child scores a touchdown or your little one declares something that just you're so blessed by and those emotions rile up within you why do Christians think that enthusiasm about the most worthy one in the universe has to somehow be contained as if God was saying, hey, way to keep it a secret, Terry. Thanks for not letting anybody know how you really feel about me. No, the truth is God isn't so excited about closet Christians, secret admirers. So tell them. Don't be afraid and tell them. I'm not trying to make you into an emotional kook. I'm not. I'm just saying that, there, that the Lord places a lot of things in our lives that deserve our adoration and our praise. And if you do that through the day, I promise you that when we get together and do corporate worship, it will be joyous and people will be healed and it will make a difference in the kingdom. Okay, so I want to pray and I want, we'll just go through one of my favorite songs. Would you stand to your feet? Let me pray. Father, we look so forward to your glory in heaven, the absence of hurt and pain. But Lord, you deserve to be worshipped, to be glorified, and we'll lift your name. Would you stand and sing clothed in rainbows?